time of worship. Good morning to our friends at home. I know we have some folks out in the fellowship hall. We have people in the nursery. We have people all over the place. Uh, it's good to gather even separately together. Uh, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts. Today we are in chapter 2 of Acts. Look at us moving along so rapidly. Um, after Tough crowd. Um, but we're going to pick up today in Acts chapter 2. Certainly uh, my prayer is that the Lord would bless us as we dig into his word. I, I also wanted to just take a moment and pray for our nation. Uh, we have a new administration now, presidential administration. We have some new leadership in Congress uh, as well with uh, the new Senate Majority Leader. Uh, so we want to pray for uh, those men and women. We want to pray for uh, our state leaders as well as our local leaders. So let me, let me do that. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we, uh, we do thank you for uh, the gift of this nation and, Lord, the freedom uh, that we have enjoyed and uh, that we continue to enjoy in this day. And, and Father, we ask that uh, you would continue to bless us with it and that we would use it wisely, uh, particularly those of us in the church, us in the church. Lord, we pray that we would honor your name uh, in all things. And Lord, we do lift up uh, the new presidential administration, President Biden, President, uh, Vice President Harris. Lord, we do pray for Speaker Pelosi and uh, Leader Schumer. And Lord, for all of those, Lord, that have uh, sacrificed to serve in those positions, Lord, we pray that uh, you would continue to work in them, even if they don't yet know you, to prompt them to be the servants of your people. Lord, we pray that you would bless them with others around them that know you and that might be able to speak, Lord, into their lives and into the uncertainty uh, of these days in which we live, Lord, the truth of Jesus Christ and the blessing of being in right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray the same types of things for our governor, Lord, for our, uh, our Senate and our assembly here in the state and the, those that are leading those and those that are representing each of us. Similarly, we pray that we know many of our uh, congregation comes from Pennsylvania. Lord bless uh, Governor Wolf as well as Governor Murphy and work in their lives. Father, bless your word. Lord, we are, uh, we're amazed by how truth, true it is. And Lord, how it resonates with the working of your spirit within us. Lord, we're amazed that we could come back to it again and again as a group of believers and as individuals. And it continues to speak truth, Lord, into each one of our circumstances. Truly, your word is living and active. It's alive and it's at work within us. And Father, we pray that you would take today a, a, perhaps a familiar passage and you'd give us insight into these things, Lord, both uh, from the study of them, but even experientially. And you'd bless us as a result of gathering together. We ask this thing, these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as I said, we're in Acts chapter 2. We, we've spent now about three weeks in the book of Acts so far as we were in Acts chapter 1. And you recall, there, there's a number of things that are going on in Acts chapter 1, certainly, but sort of that central theme of Acts chapter 1 was waiting for the disciples to go back to Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Father, which again, we know, is the coming of the Holy Spirit. 
And so perhaps of one verse, two verses that summarize chapter one, which is a good uh, technique maybe for you to do as you're studying a passage, a particular chapter, is maybe if you can find one verse that kind of explains the passage, you know, you put a circle around that. Next time you flip through in your Bible, you, you get the central theme of that, that particular chapter. Or maybe it's a verse you memorize even. And I think the central verse or verses of chapter one is verses four and five, which say, and while staying with them, he ordered them, Jesus, not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And that's the central theme of the chapter. There's other stuff that was going on there we spent some time considering, but that's what the disciples did. They obeyed the Lord, they went back to Jerusalem, and there they began to wait. And as we have seen already, we'll see it in greater detail today, they would do that for a period of about 10 years, or excuse me, 10 days. They would wait for 10 days. Some of us feel like we're waiting for 10 years, but for 10 days they would wait for this uh, coming of the Holy Spirit, this promise of the Father. Chapter 1 recounts the leading up to the coming of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 2, which we're going to look at today, tell us of his coming, his coming upon the children of Israel. So let me, or the, the church, let me read these verses, starting in verse 2. It says, Now when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing the disciples speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished saying, Are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, converts, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them, telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mockingly said, they're filled with new wine. Because people that are filled with new wine tend to praise the Lord uh, frequently, apparently, was their thinking. Well, back to verse 1, you'll notice it says, now when the day of Pentecost arrived. Now, Pentecost is a term that is used in the New Testament. Uh, it has an Old Testament equivalent. It went by kind of a different name in the Old Testament, I, I suspect, depending on the version you're reading. But it went by the name, the Feast of Weeks. And so Pentecost is the same as the Feast of Weeks. And both of those, for the Jews, commemorated 50 days, Penta 5, you see that there, uh, 50 days from the Passover, and it was an opportunity for the Jewish people to celebrate the wheat harvest uh, that had just kind of come to its conclusion. And so you have the Feast of Passover, uh, and then 50 days after that, you have what is called the Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost. And they call it the Feast of Weeks because it's seven weeks later, um, the Feast of Pentecost. This is what it reads 
in Leviticus 23 about this feast. I think we have it for the screen here. Leviticus 23 says, Now you shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the weave offering, or the wave offering. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. Verse 21, And you shall make a proclamation on the same day you shall hold a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. It's a statute forever in all your dwelling places throughout your generations. Now notice in verse 21 there, it speaks of this idea of holding a holy convocation. A holy convocation was the mandate that the people had to gather together. They had to come together. And so this is one of the feasts, there's three, in Israel of the Jewish people where they were required to come together. The place they would eventually do that would be the city of Jerusalem where the temple would be built. And so there were multiple feasts where they had to do that, three of them. There's seven feasts for the Jews, eight if you count Hanukkah, which isn't really a biblical feast, but it became a practice of the Jewish people. And three of those feasts, they were required to come to Jerusalem in a holy convocation, Pentecost being one of them. They were expected to come at Passover, and they did. You remember when we were looking at uh, the crucifixion of Christ, we were studying the Passover and the Last Supper and those events. We talked about how the city of Jerusalem would swell from 10 or 15,000 to about 150,000 people. That was during the Feast of Passover. Even more came during the Feast of Pentecost, and primarily because the weather was better, the traveling conditions were better, and they could come from greater distances. And so it was packed during Passover. It was really packed during Pentecost and the Feast of Weeks. And that's going to become significant to our story as we continue into chapter 2 and, and even a portion that we already read. So we'll come back to that as we get there. Now, if you think about the Feast of Passover, you know that the Lord infused sort of new meaning to that ancient Jewish feast. So he gathered with his disciples and he essentially converted the feast of Passover from a celebration of the Jews' deliverance from Exodus to his own sacrifice as the Lamb of God. And so you remember in the Old Testament that the Jews had to sacrifice a lamb and apply the blood to the, doors, uh, the doorpost and lentil of their home. And the angel of death, the last of the plagues in the book of Exodus, the angel of death would pass over those particular homes. Well, in the New Testament, we see that Jesus essentially makes it clear, I am the Passover lamb. Do this in remembrance of me. This is my body. This is my blood, which has been shed for you. He gave this ancient feast new meanings. New meaning, I should say. The next feast that would come the day after the Passover was what was called the Feast of Firstfruits. And the Feast of Firstfruits, it lasted one week. It began, as I said, the day following Passover, and we see that Jesus gives, or the New Testament, Jesus gives it new meaning as well. And so whereas in the Old Testament, it celebrated the first fruits of the harvest, they would sort of wave it to the Lord, look what the Lord has provided, we trust it. we're going to give this to him, we trust he'll provide more for us. Well, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says this, very interesting, he says in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, but in fact... Christ has been raised from the dead, notice, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. 
but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. And so Christ is the firstfruits of the resurrection. So remember that Old Testament um, feast of firstfruits? They would take the, the grain, they would wave it before the Lord. This might be the only piece of grain that is growing out there. But they would take it and they would offer it to, to the Lord, confident the Lord was going to bring even more. Which again is what they celebrate at Pentecost when the harvest is over. Well, in the same way, Paul says Jesus Christ has been resurrected from the dead. He's our first fruits, the first offering. We're confident there will be even more resurrections, those that believe in the name of Jesus Christ. And so Paul there in his teaching, he transforms this. He gives it new meaning, if you will, for the Christian. Well, Pentecost is the same. You'll notice Passover lines up perfectly with the sacrifice of Christ. The resurrection takes place right in the midst of the Feast of First Fruits, and then this Feast of Pentecost uh, occurs on the exact day of Pentecost. Interesting. And so there is additional feasts that have yet to be been fulfilled as far as the New Testament is concerned. I wouldn't be surprised if they occur on the exact days or uh, during the celebration of those particular feasts. Interesting study for you to dig into on your own. But let's look now at Pentecost a little bit. Two main purposes for the Old Testament Jews. Number one was to celebrate the Lord's provision agriculturally for his people. Looks what, look what the Lord provided. In this particular feast, they would, have to, they would bake two loaves of bread that they would bring and they would offer. Look what the Lord has provided for us agriculturally. It also had an historical significance to the Jewish people as well. Uh, because according to Jewish tradition, doesn't say this in the Bible necessarily, but according to the Jewish tradition, it began to be associated that the law was given to Moses, Mount Sinai, he comes down, Ten Commandments and so on, uh, that the law was given during this particular feast. And so it celebrates the Lord provided for us agriculturally, but it also had a historical significance. God has given us his law. He's spoken to us as a people. He set us apart among all the people of the world to know his will, that we might walk in his ways and that he would bless us. That's what the Jews celebrate on Pentecost. So notice, in the Old Testament day of Pentecost, Israel is commemorating the receiving of the law. The New Testament celebration of Pentecost, the church is receiving the Holy Spirit and receiving him in power. The law is good, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's a good purpose for the law. It's to ultimately point us to our need for a Savior. And the New Testament celebrates the work of the Savior, Savior and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. New meaning has been infused into this particular holiday. Uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 4, we read it today. It says this, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. That's the new meaning, if you will, of the New Testament Pentecost, that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. A new dispensation of God's working with man, we call it the church age. And it begins on the very day that they celebrated the old dispensation of God's working with man, the Old Testament law. But here we are now beginning the church age with Holy Spirit, with believers, in believers, and now he comes upon them with great power. Well, as I said, they waited a hundred. I keep saying they waited ten days. There were 120 now that had gathered. 
since the ascension of Jesus Christ. And they're waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. And we read here that he does that. He does come. Notice that I say he. The Holy Spirit is not an it. Uh, we're kind of tempted to say that. Um, not in a bad sense. It just sort of feels natural almost to say it came. But the Holy Spirit is a he. He's not a force. He's not an energy or anything like that. He's God. Uh, God, I said. Uh, he's God. And that means he is personal in nature. We can have a relationship with him as God. Uh, and he comes. His coming is associated, as I read, with uh, supernatural signs. And his coming is also associated with them bursting out into the praise of God in languages that were previously unknown to them as the speakers. Other people knew what the languages were because they understood them, but they themselves didn't know. The Holy Spirit came on them and filled them in a way that he had never filled them before. And that, that filling, as we're going to see, is going to transform their lives and their ministries. Remember, they had been a people cowering and hiding, and when we come to the end of this chapter in the next week or two, we're going to see they're out in front of people boldly proclaiming the truth. And they would continue to do that through the rest of the, the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit changed them, filled them with power, as Jesus said, to be his witnesses. And so again, let me read this opening experience, verses 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them, rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now later in the chapter, Peter's going to explain what is going on here. And in his explanation, he's going to point to two prophecies. One of them is uh, a prophecy by the prophet Isaiah, and the other one he references, and he said, this is what Joel spoke of as well. So he references two Old Testament prophecies, one of Isaiah and one of Joel, of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit from on high upon this group of people. Peter says it's a fulfillment of these particular things. Peter would also say, in quoting Joel, that this is the beginning of the end, or this, these are the last days, we may use that particular phrase. Peter references that we have entered into a new age, the church age, the beginning of the end, the last days, as he talks about it there. And that's this church age in which we're living. Now the event that I read, this passage of scripture, has caused a lot of conversation among the church over the last 2,000 years. What's it mean? How does it apply? What are we to get from this? What's it mean for us in this age in which we're living? And people in the church, good people, they come up with different understandings of this particular passage and its application to our lives as Christians. All right? And so I'm aware of that. I understand that. I, I suspect some of you might have a slightly different understanding, or I imagine a lot of us come to this and are like, I'm not really sure what exactly this means for me, but I'm willing to know. What does God want for me or, or in my life here? I think one of the best ways of understanding the events and what's going down is to look at two of the symbols that um, are present in the account. And that would be the symbols of wind and fire. 
So again, if you look at verse 2, it says, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. All right, so it's a symbol. It wasn't a rushing wind. It wasn't some tornado gale or something that came through. But it was the sound like a mighty rushing wind. He's describing the Holy Spirit. The coming of the Holy Spirit was like this sound of a mighty rushing wind. The second thing, the second symbol is fire. And there, notice it says, uh, and divided tongues as of fire. So not actual fire necessarily, but uh, the best Luke can come up with was, it was like these divided tongues as of fire. But again, it's a symbol pointing to the coming of the Holy Spirit. And so we don't want to be drawn away, well, tell me more about this wind, or tell me more about this fire. Our attention should be drawn to the Holy Spirit. And that's the one that Jesus told them to go back and to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit, not the wind and not the fire. But in his attempt to explain it, he uses those particular symbols. Now, he'll say in verse 2 that suddenly there came a sound from heaven like a mighty rushing wind. All right, so this isn't a natural wind or, or something like that. He says it's a sound that came from heaven. He's trying to draw us as the readers, to this point that this is a supernatural occurrence from heaven that is going down here, right? So that's important for us to consider. Uh, and then he uses the descriptor of wind. Now, wind is a familiar descriptor in the Bible for the Holy Spirit. It's interesting that in both the Greek language and the Hebrew language, Old Testament being written in Hebrew, New Testament primarily in Greek, it's interesting that both of the words used for spirit, like Holy Spirit, can also be used for breath or wind. Isn't that interesting? And so Luke compares it to something that is um, pretty familiar in our study of the scriptures, this idea of the wind. He compares the Holy Spirit to that. Again, remember, he's not a force, he's not an energy, he's not a wind. He's compared to those things. Wind is often used as a type of the Holy Spirit. You remember John chapter 3. John chapter 3, it says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. And so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So the comparison. Can you see wind? No, you can see the impact of wind. Wow, the trees are really moving today. You can see the impact of it. Man, I heard it was like a train that went by. You can hear it, but you can't see it and you can't describe it. You just see the impact of these particular things. And John, or the author there in John chapter 3 is mentioning that and comparing that to the Holy Spirit. He speaks of the sound from heaven. Here, the sound from heaven was the sound of the Holy Spirit being poured out on the disciples. The second symbol is fire that he uses. Again, in verse 3, he says, And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. Now, it wasn't actual fire, but the closest thing Luke could come up with to describe what it was he was observing was fire. And that, too, is a familiar way to describe the Holy Spirit in the Scriptures. When John the Baptist was asked by the religious leaders about the nature of his ministry, he said this, I baptize with you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Again, the link there between fire and the Holy Spirit. 
We also bring to mind that fire is repeatedly used in the Old Testament as a symbol of the presence of the Lord. You remember Moses, as he's wandering on the backside of the wilderness, he comes upon a bush that is burning, but that is not being consumed. It interests him, he went to it, and then he began to have a conversation with this particular bush. The bush represented the fire of that particular bush, which apparently wasn't real fire because it wasn't being consumed, was the presence of God. And Moses communed there with the presence of God. You remember what is called the Shekinah glory of God that appeared in the Old Testament and came down in the presence of fire. You recall that it was a pillar of fire that led the children of Israel as they wandered through the wilderness in the evenings. It was a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And that represented the presence of God. Uh, you recall when the temple was dedicated, that the fire came down, the presence of God came down, and the Shekinah glory of God filled the most holy place um, there. Again, the presence of the Lord. And so fire is regularly used in the Old Testament as a symbol of God's presence. Fire in the Old Testament also speaks of purification. And so you think of the Psalms of David when he talks about the refiner's fire doing a purifying work in the lives of believers. The idea there is purification, much like fire will purify gold. Fire, we know, also burns away that which is temporary, and it leaves behind only those things that are eternal or those things that will last. You remember how Paul said it in the New Testament. He said, now, if anyone builds in the foundation with gold, silver, and precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become manifest. Fire comes through, the wood, hay, and straw are gone. But the gold, the silver, the precious stone, they remain. I've just added to Paul's word here. I'm sorry, why don't I let him say it? Uh, he says, the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by the fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. So fire becomes, in the scripture, an excellent illustration of the filling of the Holy Spirit because it reveals that the Holy Spirit doesn't just come as sort of some abstract power or some interesting thing, but that the Holy Spirit comes to cleanse and to purify those whom he inhabits. Fire is a good symbol of those things. We may not think of it so much because we have electricity, we walk into a room, we turn on a light, but think back before the days of electricity. Fire served the purpose of illumination. Fire was helpful. You would turn that candle on and turn it on. You would light that candle there, uh, and you would have light. You'd set a fire out in the backyard or whatever it might be, the field you're in, and you would have light. It provides illumination. And even so, we see that on this day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes upon these believers, they're, giving an, they're given an understanding of things that they just could not get before. Consistently, they'd come back to the Lord and, Lord, you know, is it this and is it that? Lord, is it, should we call down fire, Lord? What's the matter with you guys? They just didn't get it. Now Peter stands up, this fisherman, not, not a trained, you know, classically trained individual, and he's able to give one of the most remarkable Old Testament Bible studies that many respond to. Why? Because the Spirit had come upon him and had given him a new illumination to these things, an understanding of these things, and the ability to communicate it effectively to those that were in his presence. And so you have these outward signs. You have the wind, you have the fire. They're demonstrating the presence uh, of the Lord. And in, it, in this instance, 
they enable these disciples to speak in other tongues, as verse 4 says, as the Spirit gave them utterance. I've tried to choose my words carefully where, where I said, in this instance. Because as we'll continue to see in our study of the New Testament, the filling of the Holy Spirit isn't always associated with speaking in other tongues as it was in this particular instance. And I think that's an important point for us to make because there are some that teach, Christians, good people, that teach that if you do not speak in tongues as a Christian, then you actually are not a Christian. I still think they're good people. I just think they're misguided in their understanding of it. But the thinking is that speaking in tongues is the sign that you have the Holy Spirit. And if you have the Holy Spirit, you're in Christ. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not in Christ. Therefore, if you don't speak in tongues, then you must not be a Christian. That's what some folks teach. As we continue to make our way through the book of Acts and then into the epistles, I think it is clear that that's not what the New Testament teaches. All right? And so, in this instance, when the Holy Spirit came upon them and filled them with power, associated with that was also this speaking in tongues here. The Apostle Paul, he said this. He said, are all apostles, I'll let you answer, class. No, we're not all apostles. Are all prophets? The answer is no. Are all teachers? No. Do all work miracles? No. Do all possess gifts of healing? No. Do all speak with tongues? Yes. Right? That's what some, but it doesn't make sense. In the context of that passage, Paul's making it very clear with the rhetorical questions that he's asking that the answer is no. And so some will, some won't. But in this instance, the Holy Spirit came upon believers and he filled them and he empowered them to praise God in unknown tongues. The question remains, do some speak in tongues? Or maybe more applicable to us, do some speak in tongues today? And that's the debate that a lot of Christians continue to have in their experience with the Holy Spirit and in their relationship with God. Is the gift of tongues for today? And is the gift of tongues something for me? Well, I believe that uh, Christians do continue to speak in tongues today. Not all Christians, but some Christians are still gifted with this. And we'll continue to talk about this as we move through the book and even later into our study. So I'm going to move on here for a moment, but I'll just lay that out there. And so what we have is we have the presence of the Holy Spirit on a person. It's not always that they're going to speak in these unknown tongues, but again, in this instance, they do. And the Holy Spirit comes upon them. He fills them with power, just as Jesus said he would do. So look back at chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus said this, just, just prior to leaving. He said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And here they are now filled with his Spirit so that they're empowered to be his witnesses. Verse 4 says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And the power that they're going to experience is not to be empowered to speak with tongues or to be empowered necessarily to prophesy or to be empowered to heal or empowered to perform miracles. But Jesus said, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you to be my witnesses. 
And as we continue to go through chapter 2, that's exactly what's going to occur. Uh, I don't want to ruin the story for those who haven't read ahead. As 3,000 are going to come to the faith as a result of the witness that Peter gives of this experience here. But some have said this. Jesus said, you will be my witnesses. That reveals the mission of the church. And you will be filled with the Holy Spirit. That reveals the secret to the power of the church. Would you agree? That guy over there. All right, thank you very much. I heard a, I don't know, whatever. All right, so let's uh, move on. So I said in a previous study that if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. All right, so all believers are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The filling of the Holy Spirit is an additional experience that we enjoy. And we saw that with the disciples, and we see that in our lives both experientially and as we continue to make our way through Acts and into the Gospels, or excuse me, into the Epistles. One of the things we discover is that the filling of the Holy Spirit is not a one-time activity in the lives of Christians, but rather it is something that it can occur again and again and again. Paul would write in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, he says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with with the Spirit. Now, if you read that in most of our English translations, unless you're reading something like an amplified version of the Bible, um, amplified versions are essentially trying to communicate all that the Greek language, the original language, is trying to communicate. In the English language, they become a little cumbersome, they become a little wordy, but they're helpful to go and kind of look and, and see the direction that the, the original language was trying to go. But most of our translations, uh, New King James, King James, English Standard, NIV, uh, New American Standard, many of those translations that a lot of us are reading will say something like I just read, but be filled with the Spirit. And you read that and you might think it's essentially communicating, make sure that at some time in your Christian walk, you're filled with the Spirit. I think it's helpful in this instance to go back to the original language to look because in the original language, it's written in a tense. And we have, what do we have, like three tenses essentially, past, present, future in English. And I, I think there's other ones, but I never got that far in English um, <laughs> class here. But in the Greek language, there's something like nine tenses. And they're used pretty frequently like we use past, present, and future. One of those is, is here, it's a present tense verb, which is different from just the present tense. And a present tense verb means it's an activity that happens and continues to happen. This is a present tense verb, which means we could translate this more like, but be being filled with the Spirit. Be continually being filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul is writing in this particular verse. As we make our way through the book of Acts, we see that these disciples that are filled here in Acts chapter 2 are filled again in subsequent chapters of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 13. So they're filled on multiple occasions. So if you look at their experience in Acts and you look at the teachings that we discover in the epistles, we see that Christians can be filled again and again and again. Now you might ask the question, if you're filled once, why do you need to be filled again and again and again? Why keep being filled? And somebody asked that question of the great early 20th century preacher, Dwight Moody. And Moody's response, I think, is an excellent response. It's very simple, but it's an excellent response. Why do you need to keep being filled again, Mr. Moody? And his response was, because we leak. 
because we leak and we more of our flesh sort of gets in side of what's going on in our lives and we need to go back to God and say God have your way in me control me once more fill me once more with your Holy Spirit interesting what's it well let me say this what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit to be filled with the Spirit simply means to be controlled and influenced by the Holy Spirit it's nothing it's not some you know do those people shine? Do those people float when they walk? Do those people speak in certain languages that others don't? It's not those things. To be filled with the Spirit simply means to be controlled and influenced by the Spirit. In Ephesians 5 again, I quoted it a moment ago, Paul makes a, quite an interesting contrast there. He says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And so he makes a contrast between being drunk with wine and being filled with the Spirit. So how do we describe a person that is drunk with wine? Well, oftentimes we say, well, that person was under the influence of a particular substance. They were under the influence. They were driving under the influence. So think then with me, what begins to happen to people that are the, under the influence of a particular substance? Well, that substance affects their thinking. And so the person who's under the influence begins making decisions that they never would have made had they not been under the influence of that particular substance. It's one of the reasons why we ban people from driving under the influence because their ability to think and to process and all of those things is weakened. And so even if they're just a little bit above that limit and they might think, I'm fine, I got no problems, we know the reality, no, you're, you've been altered. And that's why you can't get behind the wheel. And so it affects their thinking. It oftentimes, and you see this on TV shows, they sort of make a joke of this, but the substance often affects their speech. And so maybe they begin to slur their words when they speak. Or perhaps they're just more free to say things that they would have never said before. But now that they're under the influence, these things begin to come out. How else are they affected? More often than not, the, pulse, the person's walk is affected. And they begin, moving forward begins to become a struggle for them. And they stumble, perhaps, as they try to make their way about. A person under the influence, they're no longer as inhibited as they perhaps once were. So people that are under the influence of alcohol are changed. They're different during that time of being under the influence of that substance. And they are so in ways that others take notice of. What are you been drinking? Right? People say things like that when they begin to observe these different ways that you're acting. Well, even so, those that are under the influence of the Holy Spirit begin to think and to act differently. Now, I'm not talking about, and there's this trend or whatever that is out there about being drunk in the Spirit. And you come to church and the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you begin rolling around on the ground and laughing and, you know, doing all that, just like drunk people would do. I'm not making those kinds of comparisons and I don't believe the Apostle Paul is making those kinds of comparisons. But think about some of the things that I just suggested to you that we observe in people that are under the influence of alcohol. People that are under the influence of the Holy Spirit begin to think differently. They have, and we have, the mind of Christ. And the more we study God's word, the more his mind becomes our mind. 
People that are under influence of the Holy Spirit begin to think differently. People that are under the influence of the Holy Spirit begin to talk differently. Our words now begin to magnify Christ. They begin to testify of his goodness. They become marked with joy and less with complaining. We begin to talk differently. People that are under the influence of the Holy Spirit begin to walk differently. Our goals are now different. Our purposes in life are changed. Our lives begin going in a new direction because we're heading toward a new destination. And so people that are filled with the Holy Spirit, their walk is different. People that are filled with the Holy Spirit, their inhibitions often are removed as well. And suddenly, they begin to find themselves doing things and saying things and going places that they would have never entertained being involved with before. But now they're just prompted. they got to do it. God's Holy Spirit is changing them. That's why I think Jesus said, and you will be my witnesses. Remember he said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will be my witnesses. And so you think back to the drunk person. Does the drunk person need to go around telling everyone that they're drunk? They might, but they don't have to. We all see it. We all observe it. We know it. And similarly, with the person that is under the influence of the Holy Spirit, they don't even have to go around telling everyone. People observe it. They see it. What's going on with you? Why are you different? Hey, I, I, I see the way you respond. Could you help me understand how you respond that way? As Peter would say, then you are prepared to give an answer for the reason for the hope that is in you. If you're giving an answer, that means someone's inquiring. Someone's wondering. Someone's observing you or maybe even asking the question of you. Are you with me? I would recommend, if you really want to dig into this a little further, another book that I think is very helpful. Lloyd Poley, Pastor Lloyd Poley, up in uh, Calvary Old Bridge, wrote it, and it's called Under the Influence, uh, straightforward. Um, and it's a study of Ephesians chapter 5 and the filling of the Holy Spirit. So if that's a book that might interest you, then you might want to look at where you could pick that up. All right, but we have here Jesus saying you're going to be my witnesses, the filling of the Holy Spirit. It changes people. Now let's go back to verse 4. And the second half of verse 4, it said, And the disciples received the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other tongues. That's the word the ESV uses. Some of your Bible translations might just simply say they began speaking with other languages. Now, these languages or these tongues that they were speaking with were languages that they themselves had never been taught. And so it wasn't like they took some class on these things, but rather they were enabled miraculously by the Holy Spirit to intelligibly speak these particular languages. Notice down in verse 8. In verse 8, it, the people that are observing demonstrate they understand what is being said? And so it says, they ask the question, how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language the things that these guys are saying? Now remember, these were Galileans. Galileans, there were some Jews that doubted whether Galileans even knew how to speak the Jewish language because they certainly didn't know how to do it properly. They were considered sort of backwoods kind of people that never really... Uh, had a formal class or something like that in the language. We might compare it to the way that some people mock, you know, folks from Jersey or Philly or Boston. And they're like, where'd you people learn how to talk? 
You certainly don't know how to talk proper English, as some might say. Now, we, of course, know that we do. And those folks don't know how to speak proper English. And so we say, use guys, and we know what we're talking about. Uh, I guess similar to people in the South say, y'all. But people in Galilee had a very distinct accent uh, and way of speaking. And why, why bother using the big words when the little words will do? You know, those kinds of things. And so they were looked down upon as sort of this uneducated people. And yet here now are 120 disciples, Galileans, maybe not every one of them, but certainly to those that are saying these words, they're all Galileans, and they're able to speak in these other languages. These weren't kids that had a few mandated years of foreign language in school. They were just Galileans, and yet they could speak in these other languages, a gift from God. And here they were, it says, they were speaking of the mighty works of God in these different languages. Let's pick up in verse 5. It says, now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our, in our language? Then verses 9 through 11 lists 12, 13 different uh, languages there. And then finally, he says in verse 11, And yet we hear them telling in our own language the mighty works of God. And it says, And all were amazed. And they were perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocked them and said, they're filled with new wine. Now Luke begins in verse 5, and he points out that devout men were dwelling in Jerusalem. Now I think of dwelling as that's where they live. Uh, the term that is used there is staying, visiting, sleeping overnight, hotel, that kind of thing. So he says, devout men were dwelling in Jerusalem from every nation that was under heaven. Again, remember the timing of this event was the, the well-traveled feast of Pentecost. And so the city is swelling with these folks. Again, remember, Pentecost took place in early June where the weather was nice all over the world, essentially. And so people could come from all over the world here without much difficulty, and they did. And so their population was even greater than the Feast of Passover and some of the other uh, the feasts like that because of the timing that it occurred. Verse 6 says that they were devout men. And that these Jews, devout Jews, were intrigued by what it was they heard and that they made their way to Jerusalem, probably around the Temple Mount area, to find out what's going on. What is this noise we're hearing? Now, we don't know if the noise was the sound of the mighty rushing wind, if that brought them out, or if it was the sound of 120 people praising God in these other languages and, you know, kind of all of that noise that... You know, it's one thing when you hear your language like in the background, and it can all make sense, and there can be a lot of it, but there's an, an order to it. But here there was 120 diff different people kind of calling out, and there was no order, and what is going on, and what is this noise that we're hearing? Something involving noise brought them out. They want to come out, and they want to see what is going on. And again, imagine their surprise to see a bunch of Galileans, and so that must speak to their dress wasn't as fancy as maybe the people of Jerusalem, they know who they are, and yet here they are speaking in all of these languages. They're shocked by it. Verse 6 says that the crowd, the multitude that came, were bewildered. Verse 7 says they were amazed and astonished. And then verse 12 says they were amazed and perplexed. 
And so clearly something was going on here that was unusual, it was unexpected, and they just couldn't wrap their brain about what was going on. I don't know if you've ever heard sort of this loud noise, and you're down, what was that? And you come and you get running to hear this loud noise, and then you see it, and you're like, oh, that's what it was. And it makes sense because you've come to see it. Well, these guys, they hear this noise, they come running, and it still doesn't make sense. They don't know what is going on. So they're perplexed, they're amazed, they're bewildered, all those terms that are used there. They say in verse 12, what does this mean? Some, of course, they use the opportunity to mock, and and that's always the case. But many, many more we're going to see are really trying to figure this thing out. They're open to understanding what is going on, even as others are mocking. And so they come out to see what these 120 different people are speaking. And they inquire, and Peter's going to use it. We'll get to it next week. He's going to use it as an opportunity to share the gospel and to preach from the Old Testament, to teach these folks that are gathered there. And many are going to come to the faith. Now that brings me here to kind of my final point, and that is about this idea of tongues. Many, I think, mistakenly interpret Acts chapter 2 that God gifted these disciples to speak in other languages so that they could preach to all the people that had assembled there in Jerusalem. I don't think that's what's going on. All of the people that assembled there in Jerusalem had two common languages, more than likely, Greek and Hebrew. Greek was sort of the language of the nations in which they lived in the world. And Hebrew, these are devout Jews. And we're going to see Peter will go on and he will preach to them in one of those two common languages, probably Greek, so that they could hear and they could respond. And so I don't think what's going on is that God has given them these other languages to preach. Because again, they had this common language that he could preach in. Also, remember that the disciples were already praising God for the mighty works that he had done. And at the very least, that was one of the things that brought the people out to hear what was going on. And so God gave them these tongues and they were speaking of the mighty works of God. The gathered crowd just merely overheard what it was that they were, not that they were, uh, that they were declaring to God, not even so much about God. It was a prayer. They were praying, they were praising in this particular passage here. So again, the crowd says, well, what is this? People keep asking that question today. Here's some of the questions that are commonly asked about uh, tongues, about Pentecost. Some, what exactly is the gift of tongues? Does it continue to this day? Is it something that God expects for all believers? Whether it is for all believers or some believers, the question, what's God's purpose for it? And a host of other questions that go with this particular issue. Let me try to crack some of them. Number one, what's the purpose of the gift of tongues? 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 4 says that one of the reasons for the gift of tongues is to edify the believer. Edify means to, to build up, to encourage, to strengthen the believer. So it says the one who speaks in tongues builds up himself. And so one of the reasons for the gift in a person's life is for the edification of that particular person. The gift of tongues has been referred to by some as a personal language of prayer given by God, whereby the believer can communicate with God beyond the limits of knowledge and understanding. Some people think Paul's referencing this in Romans chapter 8, 
Romans 8.28, Paul says this, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Now, I'll admit, not everybody think, thinks that refers to tongues. But I think part of that reason is, is because a lot of folks that don't think it refers to tongues don't believe that tongues continues to this day. I, on the other hand, think it does continue to this day. And so I think that verse is speaking of this idea of tongues where the Spirit helps the person in prayer in a language that allows them to communicate beyond the limits of their knowledge and understanding as the Holy Spirit moves them. I'll direct your attention if you want to read further in this. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 14 through 15 speak further on that particular topic. All right, but that's the first idea. Secondly, as we've already mentioned, some receive this gift of a personal prayer language, praise, but not every believer receives this. And so again, remember 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 20, which we looked at earlier, that Paul asked the question, do all speak in tongues? And the answer again was no. Thirdly, we take note of the fact that while tongues has an important place in the personal life of some believers, it has a very small place in the corporate life of the church, especially in public meetings as the people gather together. Again, I go back to 1 Corinthians 14. It says this, Paul saying, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. So Paul prayed in this uh, personal prayer language. He said, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, again, very important in the personal life of believers, some believers, but very little place in the life of the corporate gathering of believers. He says, nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. And then he'll go on to instruct of how it is to be used in a corporate setting. And Paul will say this, if any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three each in turn, and then let someone interpret, Paul says. So he gives very specific and defined parameters whereby the gift can be exercised in the corporate gathering of people. He says, I'd much rather speak uh, five words in a language that my audience can understand than wow them with 20,000 words from my, my unique prayer language that I have. Paul requires there also that someone would interpret. And then notice as it says there, otherwise, uh, if there's nobody there to interpret what it, what it is that God gave to that person to speak, then the person should remain silent. Now that brings up a couple of interesting points about tongues. As you look at those couple of verses that I just read there, sometimes it's communicated that a person that speaks in tongues has no control over themselves. That the Holy Spirit just comes down, moves them, there's nothing they can do about it, and their, their mouth just goes, and it begins to rattle off here. But notice a couple of things that we see in Paul's writings here. He makes it clear that people are to take turns. And so if it was one of these instances where the Holy Spirit just came upon a person, just came out, well then how can they control themselves to take turns? Paul says that two at the most three... Well, what happens if there's four people in that particular day that the Holy Spirit wanted to move in this particular way? 
Well, if you follow what Paul's saying here, two, and at the most three. And so that fourth person is going to have to control themselves and not speak in that particular setting. We see here that if there's no one to interpret the tongue that is spoken, the language, the, the phrase, the prayer, or whatever that is spoken, then the person is to hold off and to not share, or at least nobody else is to go because there's nobody here to interpret that particular tongue. And so the thing that we can take, the person that might say, well, I couldn't help it. The Holy Spirit just took over. We don't see that in Scripture. All right, so that's important for us to understand here as an aside with tongues. Fourth issue that I think is often raised in regard to the gift of tongues is whether or not the gift is given, uh, continues to be given by the Holy Spirit to the church today. And I would say this, we can see clearly in the Scripture that there was a period where it was definitely given. I think we can all agree on that, where it was definitely given. We see it modeled in Acts. We see it taught about. The question then goes, well, does it continue? And there are many well-intentioned believers, good believers, probably know far more about the Bible than, than you and I do, who do not think it continues today. And the main argument is, is that God gave the gift of tongues to the early church before the New Testament was written. They didn't have a canon of Scripture that they could go to, look at, to know the mind of the Lord. And so the Lord needed to supplement the Old Testament in that time with these miraculous, what we'll call sign gifts, one of which is the gift of tongue. Special words from the Lord for his people at that point. But now that we have the New Testament, we don't need that any longer. And so God doesn't give the gift of tongues any longer. I understand where those folks are coming from. I don't agree with the conclusion that they've come to. And maybe you've come to that conclusion, and respectfully I say I don't agree with the conclusion that you've come to. One of my responses would be this. If you go back again to Acts chapter 2, the pouring out of his spirit that demonstrated itself through the speaking in tongues was again not to preach and to teach. It was for the purpose of speaking the mighty works of God, of praising the Lord. And so again, I think tongues is a prayer language not a preaching language that it is to be used for. All right, but uh, I'll let you sort of dig into it yourself and seek the Lord for what he would have for you um, there. I think the Lord would have us seek him if he would desire to impart that to us in these days in which we live. Now, a final question that is often raised regarding this experience of the disciples is, uh, is the gift of tongues in Acts chapter 2 the same that Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 12 and in 1 Corinthians 14. And to say that another way, there are some that suggest there are two different gifts of tongues. One, like we see in Acts chapter 2 for preaching, and one that we see in 1 Corinthians 14 for a prayer language. Well, they may have a, an argument there. I don't fully agree with it. But certainly you have to acknowledge something unique and different is going on in Acts chapter 2 than 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And the reason I say that is because in Acts chapter 2, there's far more than two or three people that are speaking. There's 120 speaking. And it doesn't seem that they're doing so one after the other. And so that is certainly a distinction that we see uh, between the two that is going on there. Also, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul describes the tongues there this way. He says, For one who speaks in a tongue 
speaks not to men but to God. That's this idea of a prayer language. For no one understands him. And yet, back in Acts chapter 2, what did the people say? We hear them speaking in these tongues, uh, you know, and we understand them in our languages. All right, now, I'll, I'll just tell you, the counter, so that makes it look different, correct? The counter argument to Acts chapter 2, where he, or 1 Corinthians 14, 2, where he says no one understands him, is no one in that congregation, Paul is saying. In that particular congregation, they only spoke a particular language, and so if you speak... So anyway, there's an argument. People aren't convinced as to what the meaning here is. And if there are multiple giftings of the tongue, uh, I tend to think not, personally. But something's going on here in this passage. All right, so with that, let me begin to draw our time to a close. Amen? Yeah, I hear it. I hear you. I see it in your eyes. All right, so the last 10 minutes, 15 minutes of my message was all about these, the tongues and these signs that occurred and accompanied the filling of the Holy Spirit. But I want to remind you as we go back, what should be the focus of our study of Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13? It's the Holy Spirit, the filling of the Holy Spirit. Not the sign gifts necessarily, or it sounded like a mighty rushing wind, or it was like tongues of fire, but it should be the Holy Spirit and the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And again, why did Jesus tell them to go and wait for the power of the Holy Spirit? Again, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you to be my witnesses. So the disciples were filled with God's Holy Spirit for the first time on that particular day that they might be empowered to live the Christian life and be witnesses all across the world. And God certainly wants to continue to do that in each one of our lives today. He wants to fill us so that we are influenced, we're under the influence of the Holy Spirit, that we might be his witnesses all across the world and we would have the power to live the Christian life. And so I think it would be good for us to seek that this morning. Would you agree with that? Uh, and again, tomorrow morning. And then... When you get to work and somebody bothered you, I'm just going to go to the bathroom and go into your prayer closet, also called a stall in the bathroom, and seek the Lord, Lord, fill me. I need you to act so that I could act as you would have me to act. So let's just take a few moments and let's pray for that, okay? I'm going to leave it silent for a few moments so that you can pray quietly to yourself, and then I'll close our time. Father, we see in the scripture, uh, you have not because you ask not. And then you tell us in another place that, you know, uh, if a kid asks his father for a piece of bread, is he going to give him a stone or a snake or something like that? No, he'll, he'll give him what he loves him. He'll give him what he has asked for. And so, Father, sometimes in the church, we're hesitant 
to seek the Holy Spirit for his empowering and for his filling because we've seen some things, some supposed manifestations of the Holy Spirit that, that scare us or that freak us out or um, we don't fully yet understand and we're hesitant then to open ourselves up to receive from you. But Lord, you're a good father and you love us and you want the very best for us. And Lord, uh, we've come to trust you in all circumstances. And so, Lord, in a fresh way this morning, we come into your presence. We entrust ourselves to your care. And we invite you to fill us in a new way. Lord, you know there's a bunch of stuff going on within us that hinders your work and maybe your presence in our lives. Lord, we commit this morning really to put those things aside so that we're a clean vessel that can just sort of inhabit all of the Holy Spirit to the brim and overflowing. And so, Lord, bless us as we seek your face. Fill us with your power that we might be your witnesses. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing one more song together.